Love Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for March 7th, 2021. Uh, welcome back, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, as always, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, exciting show tonight. In addition to the topics we're going to discuss, in about 20 minutes, uh, we're going to have the founder and editor of Press Run Media, Eric Bollert. He's going to be on the show uh, talking about politics and media, which, as you all know, I'm just fascinated with uh, what what we do moving forward with politics and media or what those um, stations slash companies decide to do with it. Um, you know, moving forward, but how that affects our democracy. So that's going to be a great discussion. Um, and until then, we've got several things to talk about, but we're going to talk um, a little bit of the national issues. And this past week, um, I guess just yesterday, in fact, we passed a, a substantial stimulus pass package, COVID relief package, um, but it did not include minimum wage. But I don't think minimum wage increasing it is dead in any way. I do think there is going to be standalone action on that, and that's kind of where we're going to take our discussion. Um, Catherine, I guess first off, uh, just your thoughts on the um, COVID relief economic stimulus package and not including a minimum wage just, you know, to kind of get us going. Yeah, well, I think it was, you know, it's about time. What, you know, it, I think we've all been waiting for this to happen. You know, a lot of people are um, troubled by the lack of the minimum wage being added. But you know, as we, as most of us know, the parliamentarian ruled that that they weren't allowed to do to, to include it. But I, like you said, I don't think it's said. I think there's a lot of um, our our elected officials who are very adamant about getting something like this passed in some fashion. Um, looks like I haven't read. I haven't read all the details about the stimulus package, but I think it's, you know, a good, a, a good effort. Um, I know people, some people were upset by the fact that they limited, um, they put some salary caps on it. I, th- I think it's sort of when you've got, a, you know, such a tight Senate, you've got to make some compromises and that seems like, you know, of all the compromises to make, that seems like one that we should all be able to swallow. Uh, caps, I think, at seventy-five and then one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. I, think that, I, I mean, it, it. The only question I have is that how if all those people who made, because I think this is based on your previous year's taxes, if those people lost their jobs. And so then if they lost their jobs, does that make a difference? And I don't know exactly how those details work out. But all in all, I think it was it, it, it was about time, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who are very relieved by it. So I think that's good news. 
Yeah, Captain, that's an excellent point about if you did make 90000 and then you're making zero starting in March, um, <laughs> your, your need for some relief would be quite different. Um, but, hey, if you wanted to read that bill, Captain, apparently you could have stayed up all night. Uh, was it Thursday or Friday night? Turned on C-SPAN, some poor people that – and I mean by uh, unfortunate people that work at the, um, for the Capitol had to read every word of that bill thanks to Wisconsin Senator um, Ron Johnson. Um, and so I guess you could have uh, maybe slept to that because it would have probably put you to sleep if you started at midnight or whenever they did. <laughs> um, and I'll say this, uh, it just uh, – Without giving too much information, you know, the state is going to give state employees, including teachers, a bonus, and there's a breaking point around 80. And, um, you know, I, I'm kind of the, that range where I'm not sure if I'm going to get these bonuses. And you know what? At the end of the day, um, if I'm making my salary and it's that high, I'm most happy about that. So if I don't get it, I don't get it. If I do, I do. And so, uh, but I guess you got to look in the the um, bigger scheme of things. That's like they said, if you're having to work from home, be glad that you have work and a home because there's some people that have neither um, through this pandemic. Oh, I, I, I'm right there with that. I, I yeah. at least, at least a couple times a week that I'm very grateful that I have had a job throughout this entire uh, pandemic. I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. Well, Tim, uh, same thing. You probably actually get to see more of the debate and discussion. Um, your thoughts on just the, package as, as it went through and then not putting a minimum wage in it? Well, I mean, the votes for a $15 minimum wage were simply not there. Catherine mentioned it. We got a 50-50 Senate and at least um, two, and as we found out later, as many as eight uh, Democrats, were, you know, were going to vote in opposition to the to the $15 an hour minimum wage. So the most votes we were going to get for the whole package, if we had left the minimum wage in, it was going to be 48 and it was going to fail. And uh, we found out that that number was actually 42 when Bernie Sanders, the, you know, they started in the Devotorama with all the amendments. Um, and the very first one out of the chute was Bernie Sanders' amendment to restore the $15 an hour minimum wage to the bill, and and it it you know failed 57-42. Um, with every Republican voting against it, uh, along with uh, uh, you know seven seven Democrats, as it turned out. So uh, you know they just you know start making yeah. eight Democrats rather. So it, it just it just was not going to happen. I know people are disappointed. Maybe later they can come back with a more modest proposal. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to have to be more modest because the next time they try to pass it, it'll be a standalone bill and it'll take 60 votes in the Senate to get it. So you know you're not you're not going to get you're not even going to get 50 votes with $15 an hour. So you know, but but there's but but there's a lot of good stuff in this bill, and and people are really looking forward to those uh, stimulus checks. Uh, the bill itself is very popular with the American people, and um, 
even though I'm not surprised to say not one Republican on either side supported it. That's okay. It's passed and it's out there. Oh, they didn't support Obamacare either, and it's been the law of the land now for a decade. So, you know, that that's okay. It'll come back to bottom in the end. Yeah, and, and I think you had told us uh, Senator Sullivan of Alaska had a death in the family and wasn't there. Right. And, of course, right. you know, Vice President Harris would have been the 51st vote, and she could have done that. I, I do find it interesting. They didn't force that. They didn't try to, you know, tell Senator Sullivan to, you know, hold off on no, going well. to force that vote to, for the symbolic nature. Because well. I think somehow in some world the Republicans probably think they're scoring points if they have to use – the vice president spoke to break the tie, but they didn't have well, to do that now, yet. She was used one time, and that was actually to advance the bill forward. At the mm-hmm. very beginning, before Ron Johnson pulled his stunt, they to to advance the bill forward, 51-50, they did have to get the vice president over there to break the tie for that. And after that, I'm sure McConnell just, uh, you know, he saw he saw that 50 Democrats were going to stick once they had Manchin in line. And he probably told Sullivan, you know, you can go ahead and leave because it wouldn't do any good for you to stay. And so. Yeah. And, and so now let's get on to the minimum wage part. Now, I found out some really fascinating or heard some fascinating information about this. Uh, one, I'll go ahead and tell you, I didn't really know what the current minimum wage was. And, and that's the in every state. Some states, of course, have higher minimum wages at a state level, but it's uh, seven twenty-five, if I'm not mistaken. If I'm if I'm you know quarter that's off, correct. correct me. Seven twenty-five. So pretty damn low. Uh, I didn't realize. It was, I think hopefully most people actually. I've seen a lot of signs. You'll see starting at eight twenty-five an hour, starting at nine dollars an hour, even at fast food places. So hopefully most people are making better than that, uh, just naturally. But um, I did hear that. And this is a proposal that I remember here back in the 90s that Republicans were totally against. And apparently Republicans are open to the idea of indexing the minimum wage to inflation. And to me, I'm like, man, that's valuable. Um, and so also I heard even people like Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley, they're okay with raising it as high as, say, $11 and indexing it to the minimum wage, indexing it to inflation, which that wouldn't be what I'd be like, oh, let's just take that off for you know, face value, but you're still like, if that's where we're starting with Republicans like Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton, when you start negotiating, where could you get to? Now, my question to Catherine and Tim, we'll go in that order. Catherine, that indexing the minimum wage to inflation, how much is that worth? And what I'll say to you is like a dollar, 50 cents, $2, about how, like if you could get 13 and minimum and indexing, or twelve fifty in indexing. Where does that? Um, how many dollars do you trade for that? Do you think? Oh, you mean how far below fifteen do you go? If you get to index it, so if inflation goes up, and there is a fear that when the economy comes back, inflation is going to get the highest it's been since the um, uh, late seventies. I've heard. Uh, I. I'm not sure how to answer that question because I'm not really prepared for it. But um, my my only I I think that's a good idea. But I would be afraid that there would be all kinds of um, uh, loopholes. 
you know, like they'd be like, well, if it's not a full-time job, then it's not the same. Or if, uh, if it's a person under a certain age, you know, if it's like teenagers don't get, you know, I'd just be concerned that there, in order to get it passed, there would have to be a lot of loopholes that would cause uh, a lot of extra work for employers and not make it as, as good a, uh, solution as it might sound. That's my yeah, well, I think you negotiate that out, and those issues have been talked about. One, I think at minimum wage is a wage per hour, whether you work five hours a week or 40 hours a week. It just gets into the overtime. So I think that gets taken care of. That thing with a different minimum wage with ages, the, the, the thing that's problematic about that is um, – you might get people hiring 15 and 16 year olds instead of 25 year olds that really need the money just because they're cheaper. Um, and that becomes the problematic thing there. Cause otherwise, I mean, I think people might say, Hey, if this person does not need to support a family, it's one thing, but then if you, they're used to then circumvent the part of the economy that needs to be working, that's a bigger issue. Tim, your thoughts on that? I know that How, I, I understand work? that I understand that the current minimum wage is, for any number of hours worked. I get that. But I'm just afraid that if we were negotiating something that was indexed to inflation, that they would try to put some loopholes in there that would change some of those rules. That's the only thing that that would worry me. Tim? Well, I, 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 w- I would take what Senator Cotton and the others have said with a grain of salt. If I know what I'm about to say, they know this too. If they had been indexing that all these years, tied it to inflation like they did Social Security, the minimum wage right now would be over $21 an hour. Uh, the Republicans are not going to go for something. I, I, I wouldn't think the most conservative Republicans would go for something like that. Um, I'm, I'm kind of with Catherine. I'm thinking that they're going to pay lip service to something like that and then try to hack it to pieces with amendments or whatever they can do with it. The problem has not been indexing or anything all these years. The problem is... You know, they just quit raising it. It, it, Since 1980, there's been three periods of at least 10 years where the minimum wage was not touched. It was not raised at all. It's been seven and a quarter since 2009. The legislation passing it was in 2007. That's the problem of, you know, the first minimum wage went into effect in 1938 and they started raising it you know by 1950 it was you know it was a quarter an hour in 1938 it was three times that by 1950 the highest purchasing power of the minimum wage was in 1968 when the minimum wage was a dollar and 60 that's in eleven dollars and 60 cents now basically uh and, and I entered the workforce in 1973, and it was $1.80. And like I said, essentially the minimum wage was raised with regularity for four decades. Well, that ended when Ronald Reagan became president. It, it, the entire time Ronald Reagan was president and uh, halfway through the uh, Bush 41 
tenure, it was $3.35. Then again, it was frozen for 10 more years at $5.15 from 1997 when it was you know, raised under Clinton up to 2007 when Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats took over the House. Um, and and then, you know, it was raised in those steps to seven and a quarter. Now it sets. That's the problem. Since 1984, guys, the purchasing power of the minimum wage has actually decreased in real dollars. Hmm. So, you know, in, in, in 2014, that seven and a quarter – was worth a dollar and forty six cents in nineteen eighty four dollars. I mean, it, it, that that's your problem, right? They ain't raising it. Well, and and, that, and see, that's why I think the that's why it's so valuable. And we're talking about no loopholes. I mean, we know loopholes hurt. We're assuming no loopholes. If you could get it indexed to inflation, and let's say twelve dollars. To me, the indexing it to inflation will be so valuable because then if it's in, if it's $12 and it's indexed to inflation, then it's $12 in today's and, dollars higher than the highest and, it's ever been, and it's guaranteed to go up uh, through the legislation. And, so, therefore, and, I would, and, and I would you, push for it. And you think and you think there's 60 votes in the Senate to do? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know, but that's where you got to start to have the conversation. You've got to push for it and try. And here's the thing. We've seen the polling. We've seen the actual forget polling. We've seen the results. Florida passed the $15 minimum wage in 2018 as they were electing Ron DeSantis and um, Rick Scott. The same people that voted, you know, for Donald Trump in bigger numbers, those voters voted for the fifteen dollar minimum wage. They did a poll of West Virginia. It, it's about fifty percent West Virginia. David, I understand that there's twenty nine states that have their own minimum wage that's at or higher than the national average. Naturally, Georgia is not one of them. And by the way, there's five states naturally all in the South, of course who have no minimum wage law at all. And I understand that the minimum wage is powerful with, with the majority of voters out there, but they're going to have to make the Republicans pay at the polls for opposing the minimum wage, or they're going to continue as a party to do it. And with as many votes as they have in Congress, they can just block it. Yeah, I mean, I think it becomes an issue. That's why you have to push on it. You have to try to push, see if you can get, you know, you're going to get hopefully a double-digit minimum wage. I mean, I, I mean, if they've already said, hey, we'll go for 11, you know you got them there. So if you can get like 12 in indexing, but I think the indexing to the rate of inflation is very, very valuable, and I would be willing to give up a dollar or two. But knowing that you're going to get built-in raises as inflation, you know, goes up over time, so that purchasing power, and then you don't have to keep going back and passing it over and over, and and going through the whims of, oh, well, you get some kind of, um, you know, free market Republican that just doesn't even believe there should be a minimum wage, because I've seen some of that kind of language. Oh, well, it should be the market. There should be no minimum wage. Well, well, I mean, that theory would would um, just well, start sharecropping back in the, you know, 1880s. Let, so, let me ask you let me ask you the question then that you asked sure. Catherine. 
But I want a different version of the question because I'm sold on the fact that they just not are going to be able to pass indexing right now. If they don't pass indexing, what dollar figure would you settle for? I think that's where you get into if you're truly going to pass a bill. And, I mean, if you you have to jam down 50 votes plus one, you can go to 15. And if I'm going to do that, I'm going to try, which is like you said, they, you, you may have, have to block the filibuster for it, and you have to decide yeah. what you want to block the filibuster for. And I think that may end up being voting rights, uh, is, is what I've heard. Is that may be the, the hill to down, um, is that's where they do it. But if I were, I would say um, I'd try to negotiate and see, you know, okay, we want 15, you want 10. Okay, let's get to 11, let's get to 12. But I would be willing to trade up off of almost as much as $2 for indexing the um, minimum wage to inflation because I think it avoids this battle over and over. Well, right now I am so excited uh, to welcome on to the Kudzu Vine for the first time the founder and CEO of Press Run Media, Mr. Eric Bollert. Welcome, Eric. Hey, how are you? Oh, glad to have you on. Well, um, Eric, I kind of gave your title, but that's not really a bio. So kind of tell us about your history and I guess not really just politics, but politics and media and journalism and and the whole uh, situation. Yeah, sure. Uh, So uh, as you say, I started this uh, newsletter, PressRun.media, about a year ago. Before that, I worked for uh, about 10 years at Media Matters for America, which is a liberal uh, media watchdog group. Um, I've been writing about media and politics for about 20 years. Before that, I was at Salon Magazine. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I do. I, I I kind of watch the media from a liberal perspective and and give my critique and kind of nudge it in the right direction and 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 try to have an ongoing conversation about because the media really does have such an oversized role in in uh, politics and our culture and and. Uh, I, I do it from a um, a proudly progressive point of view. Yes. Well, now, when you probably started into this line of work, you had to watch a lot of Fox News, and you might have had to read the Weekly Standard or the American Spectator and things like that. But now there's at least three news channels, and you probably know about more than I do, uh, conservative news channels. How do you find time to watch all these things? Uh, well, you know, actually, you know, I mentioned I, I used to work at Media Matters. I rely on them a lot because they have a whole staff of people who do that. Uh, but it 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 is tough, and and uh, you know, obviously, after the election and with the uh, you know the, um, the the Trump and the I guess you would call it quote unquote recount or whatever, right? That we saw the emergence of uh, of, of uh, Newsmax and OAN, and 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 because um, they were willing to go to pl- places where Trump or um, Fox News wasn't willing to go in terms of the election and things like that. So, yeah, now we have three, and, and, and it's amazing uh, because and, – and now we just saw a week or so ago Al Jazeera was going to launch a new conservative uh, digital platform in the United States. Uh, it seems to be an endless uh, market, and, and lots of people make a lot of money off it, I'll tell you that. Well, I learned something in the last 10 seconds. I didn't know they were launching a conservative uh, news yeah. outlet. That's, yeah, just one more thing. I probably won't have time to watch, <laughs> but we'll get outraged on by Twitter. Um, well, let's talk about the, the, you know, the, the historically conservative news network, uh, the one that's been around for 25 years or so, uh, Fox News. Now, yeah. 
lot of Republicans started to turn on them. Um, what is their future? Because I know their ratings were down in early 2021. Are they going to rebound, or do they have some work to do to you know build back the trust of the people that will, will believe any theory? Well, what what happened to Fox is what happened to the Republican Party, right? They're interchangeable. They're synonymous. Trump um, kind of opened this this uh, mini civil war. Um, you know, anyone that wasn't willing to follow him down this stolen election, rigged election, uh, you know, conspiracy, were you know he called them out and he you know he labeled them, uh, uh, you know, not Republican enough. So that that was the opening that the you know, these right-wing uh, media players got. Fox News, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, they, they the ratings were not only down, they finished in third place uh, basically for the month of January, right? So they lost to CNN. We're, you know, if you look at primetime, for instance, they lost to MSNBC and, and, and CNN for basically the entire month of January. CNN had been in uh, – Fox News had been number one for 20 straight years. The, Fox News had been number one since uh 9/11 uh and and then obviously the Iraq war did wonders for the ratings. So, it's not like, you know, Fox News had fluctuated over the years. I mean, they had a lead years ago. I mean, they basically doubled Fox uh, you know, CNN's ratings, MSNBC's ratings. It wasn't even close. It was not even a contest. So, uh for for Fox to come in third place in January was really a seismic event in the cable news industry. Now, since then, uh, you know, CNN's ratings have come down. CNN had an amazing July or uh, January, I'm sorry, with with all the election controversy, obviously with the insurrection and the impeachment. Uh, so CNN's ratings have come down and, and Fox, uh, I don't think, is any longer in third place. But your point is a good one. What do, you know, what does Fox News, just like the Republican Party, what do they do in, in the wake of Trump? Um, quick point that I think is is really interesting you know, we had this COVID relief bill passed over the weekend, $2 trillion, largest spending bill in, in generations. It's wildly popular. Uh, you know, CBS poll had it at 83% uh, people support it. Fox News didn't even really cover the COVID bill over the weekend. Uh, and, 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 you, and you compare that to what Fox News was doing the first six weeks of Barack Obama's term. Uh, they were inventing the Tea Party. They were inventing this mass nationwide resistance to Barack Obama, and we just don't see anything like that uh, in terms of uh, against Joe Biden. So it's really interesting. Uh, you know, Fox, Fox News was more interested in Dr. Seuss than they were this COVID bill, uh, and, and sort of it, it kind of shows where they're going to go, I think. Uh, not really interested in policy, really interested in the cultural wars. Yes, yeah, so, well, um, I'm going to ask you one more question, and then I may come back later because there's so many great things to discuss. But about Newsmax and OAN, um, both of those networks look like they're poised to take a decent chunk of um, Fox's audience. And right. then I think you may have posted um, on Twitter over the weekend, over the end part of the week, Newsmax audience is down, and my question is, is did they kind of have a boom and bust, or is yeah. OAN different than Newsmax? Uh, I think they might have had a boom and bust. And if and if Trump is basically going to disappear from the landscape, you know, obviously he's been kicked off Twitter, and that's had a huge impact on his profile. But he's not really giving interviews to anybody. I don't think the right-wing media was prepared for a 
post-Trump presidency where he basically disappears into the ether and every now and then issues an angry statement like he did about Karl Rove over the weekend. That doesn't do him any good. They've got a, you know, if you're right-wing media, you've got you want Trump out front, you want him giving interviews, uh and right now he he just doesn't seem interested. So, yeah, I mean, they those those networks did have a bit of a boom uh during January, but I I think in the end they might have um they might uh it might be a bit of a bust and, and quite frankly, you know, if if we're going to talk the right-wing fringe, you know, QAnon is part of that too and and they seem to be uh, um, kind of wandering, in, you know, Trump was supposed to be inaugurated on March 4th, I think, according to QAnon. So th- they have trouble kind of getting people excited about that as well. Yes, well, I'm just glad somebody called out Carl Rove for the um, liberal seal he's always been. <laughs> well, I'm going to pass this over to Catherine and then to Tim, and if, if they leave anything on the bone, I may come back with one more question. Catherine? Okay. Hey, thanks for being on with us tonight. We really appreciate it. Oh my pleasure. Um, I want to I want to change the change the um topic a little bit. Um in this pandemic and now with voting uh all these voting bills and uh, as a longtime inside politics person, I've always told people that they need to pay more attention to what's happening in their state legislatures and local politics because that's yeah. where you know, that's where your safety and your ability to thrive really happens, I think. I mean, but we've all, like, at least for the last 30 years, the focus has been almost only on federal policy, right, right. federal elections especially. So how do we fix that? Because, I, because you know, like, like I think we're in a perfect example of it right now where we have um, a president – who's really working to try to get the um, pandemic under control, get vaccinations out. But then here we are in Georgia, number 50 in vaccination, um, in vaccinations. And then, you know, across the South, across the country, there's a lot of states that are really struggling. So how do we get that? How does, so how do we, how do we convince the media that they need (laughs) to spend some more pay some more attention to and and so there's that but then the other part of it is that this is where we build our bench right right i mean this like i used to say to people you know barack obama didn't just fall out of a cloud and run for president he was in the state senate and then he was a senator and you know we have to build that bench so how do we how do we convince people how and how does the media play into that well, I think one of the big problems, you know, you're talking about is in terms of local and regional media is, is just the devastation that newsrooms have suffered, you know, particularly if we just look at newspapers um, over the last five or ten years, just absolutely uh, devastated by, uh, by uh, uh, you know, layoffs, lack of advertising revenue. revenue. Obviously, Facebook and, and Google have basically vacuumed up all the online advertising. I mean, we... You, you look at a, a newspaper like the Cleveland Plain Dealer or something like that, just just an absolute uh, skeleton of what it used to be. Newspapers like the Cleveland Plain Dealer, I'm just using that example, are just all around the country. I mean, they had half a dozen people on, on, on at the state house. You know, they had half a dozen people covering uh, regional politics around the state. Is re- a, it's really hard to find 
um, really good local politics coverage now because you might have one and a half person at the cap, you know, at the state house, and they've got to file three things a day when you know when the set, you know, when the legislation's in legislation is. And meanwhile, in session. Georgia has sixty voting. Yeah. Bills. <laughs> now the good news is, yeah, I mean the good news is uh, these voting rights bills, I call them voter suppression bills, and I wish you know yeah. more people in the press would do that because that that that's what we're talking about. Let's let's not dance around with you know limiting vote or, or voter restrictions. It's it's voter suppression, uh, and you know and for instance, you know I I think the national press. I, I know your point is you know we need more you know uh, local or regional, but the national press I think has done you know, a pretty good job so far this year in really, you know, um, uh, turning the spotlight on these, on these bills. Uh, you know, they're not calling them voter suppression like I, I wish, but, you know, the T- New York Times, for instance, uh, has, a, has had a couple uh, front-page stories in the last, you know, 10 days, I think. Um, just the, the one 10 days ago was just about, you know, this avalanche of legislation across the state, they had one today, uh, really focusing on black churches and what what it means if you start limiting uh, the the role they play and things like that. So I think it's gotten the attention. It's gotten the attention just because if we've never seen anything like this in American history. I mean, let let's not let's not you know uh, dance around what's going on. I mean, the Republicans lost and they want to pass laws to make sure they don't lose in the future. And and we have, like I said, we have we haven't seen anything like this since the Civil War. Uh, so it's 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 incredibly serious. It's incredibly dangerous. Uh, Rep- Democrats are trying to pass uh, something in, in in you know in Congress, but they you know they're going to run into the filibuster issue. So you know uh, so it's not good news. But I'm glad that the national press is paying a lot of attention to these, frankly, very radical. Uh, voter laws, but your your point is a good one. Uh, the, I, I feel like Republicans and conservatives feel like they can get away with a lot of stuff. And you know, if we step back from Georgia, which is getting a lot of attention, these bills are spread. They're at every state capital, and there are right. state capitals in small states and rural states that that might have three reporters covering the entire state capital at this point. And it's really easy to get stuff passed without much attention. Uh, because uh, local media, I think, has been so uh, hurt, you know, devastated and cut back. Well, I will, I will, I, I agree with you. I, I, I'm a, a morning news watcher, and I know that that's not really news; it's entertainment. But <laughs> um, uh, it's my morning routine, so there's that. But I will say that um, since the election in November, they have covered more. Uh, state uh, politics, yes, and election, especially around the election when there were, you know, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Georgia with all this recounting and all the craziness. So, and I hope that they take that as a, I hope they continue that because I really think people need to be reminded. Like, I just, you know, I meet people all the time who say, "Oh yeah." I always vote. I vote every four years. I'm like, okay, <laughs> there's an election every every year in in Atlanta because we have a mayor's race every other year, and it's on the alternate year, you know, whatever. Right, but, right. Um, but I get it, and 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 then I so I think if we can just keep reminding people, yeah, and help them recognize, and I don't, you know, it's not only the media. I mean. It's also the job of 
of, you know, advocacy organizations and stuff like that. But I really think we need to, as a country, we need to focus more on these, especially state legislatures, but also mayors and everybody else because they're the, aside from being the bench, they're also where a lot of, a lot of, Things happen that affect you day to day. Yeah, and, and and I would say a lot of bad things are happening right now. Again, if we go back to these voter these voter bills. So yeah, no, it's 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 a it's a really important point, and I hope I hope they continue to get the uh, you know the continued spotlight. Yeah, thank you. Okay, sure, I'm going to sure. pass it to Tim. Thank you very much, Tim. Good evening, sir. Thank you for being on with us tonight. Um, when I was a kid. I could turn on ABC, the evening news, and that was Frank Reynolds. I could turn over to NBC and see Huntley and Brinkley and go over to CBS, and that was Walter Cronkite. And and we listened to him give us the news, and, and we never questioned their words. And as a matter of fact, I believe it was 1972 that Walter Cronkite was named the most trusted man in America in a poll. Is that faith? in major network news gone now forever oh i think it probably is um yeah i mean cronkite also you know famously is 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 given credit or blame or wherever you sit for uh you know turning the country against uh, the vietnam war and that was the power mm-hmm. he had because he went there in 1968 and he came back and he said folks it's it's not what we've been told so yeah just an incredible uh amount of power and trust and respect he had oh yeah i mean everything has has splintered since then uh and and the and the news has become so much more polarized and 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 uh uh, and they've be- it's become the target of attack. Uh, so yeah, if you look at the polling, you know the news media doesn't do very well these days. For for decades, it was you know mostly conservatives uh, kind of dinging the press, don't trust it, don't trust it. Um, you see those numbers increasing among Democrats and liberals now um, for various mm-hmm. reasons. Uh, so yeah, it's it, yes to answer your question. I think those days are are, are gone. And at the same time in those days, um, we, we we had the giants of print media. Yeah. I, I, I used to love to read Jack Anderson's columns. Uh, Ralph McGill, I couldn't wait to see what he would say next. And what is the future of political coverage in print media now? Is, is print media doomed to a demise because of technology? Well, the good news is some of them are the, some of the big boys are, are thriving. You know, the New York Times digital subscriptions are, are kind of mm-hmm. through the kind of through the roof. Washington Post, Wall Street Journal is doing great, but boy, uh, it, 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 this kind of goes back into what we just talked about: regional or state press. Um, uh, they're in trouble, and they're going to continue to be in trouble. There's an interesting trend, which I'm very hopeful of, which is uh, major newspapers being run as not profit. Uh, the Baltimore Sun is about to be purchased and taken over by uh, a nonprofit uh, and it, by a you know a, a philanthropist and 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 who says you know I want this newspaper to serve the community. Uh, I understand those the advertising base from the 1980s doesn't exist, uh, but it's important to have this voice and it's important to have this arena. Uh, there are probably a handful of of newspapers. 
um, uh, kind of you know larger metro newspapers that are that are lucky enough to be in that position. But boy, I don't think we can I don't think we can hope for the whole newspaper industry to to have that luck. Um, so uh, again, it, across the board, no newspapers are not doomed. Uh, because uh, a lot of them, some of them are, are thriving online digitally. You know, I still read three newspapers every morning at my kitchen table. Uh, mm-hmm. When I when I go out to pick up the newspaper, there aren't a lot of newspapers on my block where other people are are, are still like that tradition. I think my neighbors are still reading the news. They're just reading it on their laptop and their phone. I just happen to have that. Uh, you know, I want that newspaper in my hand. I spend all day reading news on my computer and watching it on TV. Um, so, you know, and I would say within the last three or four years, I would say the, you know, the outlook for for kind of newspapers has has improved. You know, a lot of that, frankly, was thanks to Trump mm-hmm. and this this uh, almost endless appetite for news. And again, you know, the New York Times subscriptions digital are, are through the roof and things like that. Mm-hmm. So you would say that the internet is presently changing political coverage for better as opposed to for worse? Oh, that's a that's a slightly different question. That's an interesting one. Uh, everything is faster, obviously. You know, if uh-huh. you're re- if you're reading, you know, you're, if you're getting your political news on Twitter like I am, uh, it, it's it, you know, and again, I go back to the COVID uh, the, the COVID relief bill over the weekend. It's kind of amazing, you know. You you can get almost minute by minute update in terms of the negotiation. What's Joe Manchin asking? What are the negotiations? How 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 are they going to get this through 50 votes for reconciliation? So in a way, it's 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 better. It's more. It's uh it's uh it, it brings readers in right into the room. It's more sophisticated. Um, a lot of people didn't know what the reconciliation bill was, five, you know, method was five years ago. Now, kind of everyone knows if, if you're a political junkie. Uh, so, but you know, faster isn't always better. There, there's, there's a, you know, there's an appetite for clickbait uh, headlines, and 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 so you know, th- th- these people are, uh, you know, if you're covering politics. You know, they're chasing traffic and clicks and things like that. So I think there's a tendency to produce, you know, maybe not, you know, top of the line journalism uh, because of that. Uh, but um, it, so it's it certainly changed journalism. Um, I think it's given everyone way more options. I think you still have to pick and choose what you're going to take seriously uh, because there's so many options out there. Yeah, I wanted to ask you one more question, then I'm going to send it back uh, to David. I know that in a lot of your uh, writing, you, you, you've covered uh, the the D.C. media yeah, uh, yeah. A, a, a good bit. A lot of people have complained that the D.C. media's political coverage is just not in step with the rest of the country. Is that a fair criticism? In, in what In what sense? And 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 the way the rest of the country's media reports the goings on in Washington, does the D.C. media uh, cover that in a, and write about it in a different way that, say, um, you know, a writer from the L.A. Times would, would write? Oh about yeah, it? yeah. I mean, I think it always has. I mean, the D.C. media is is, is this own beast, and and uh, it's been, you know, in the last ten or twenty years, it's been it's become even more of this almost as entertainment center. Uh, uh, uh-huh. And, 
And so there are more outlets. There is more people chasing the stories. Obviously, Trump came in and turned, you know, four years of this nonstop news. At not, you know, it wasn't a news cycle of every day. There was four different news cycles every day for four years, and you never knew what he was going to say. And you know, uh, you know, uh, latest revelations and allegations. So it created this monsoon of uh, of news that probably I think most people outside of D.C. probably one or two years into the Trump presidency. I know a lot. I had a lot of friends and and who were who followed the news, but even after a year or two, they're just like, I can't anymore. Just like, you know, give me the highlights, you know, once a week. I can't yeah. follow this stuff minute well, by minute. So I think there was that difference in the, during the Trump years. Yeah, was the word you kept hearing exhaustion? Because that was the word I kept hearing from a yeah. lot of people who followed the news. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, it's just not possible to follow what Trump was delivering uh, that mm-hmm. that's kind of endless chaos, and you know I did it for a living, and you we all probably did it for a living, but even we were just like this this isn't <laughs> sustainable. And so if you're not in the news business, if you're in the marketing business in Omaha, I mean if you're a teacher in Austin, there's no way. Uh, why would you want to follow it that closely for four years? I think with Biden now. Uh, you know, there's this debate about the return to, quote, normalcy. I think the news cycles mm-hmm. have returned to come some sort of normalcy. And I think for news consumers, it's probably the rest of the country is probably more in sync now with the D.C. news in that it's just not nonstop chaos 24-7 the way it was with Trump. Oh, understood. Excellent analysis. And with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David? Well, Eric, you have uh, covered so many great things, but there's so, so much more we could talk about, but we can't do it all tonight. Um, I just wanted to kind of leave our listeners with you with this. Um, We told them that, you know, you're the founder, CEO of Press Run Media. If people want to read your newsletter, read your site, and anywhere else, social media or anywhere else they can find you and find your information, just share that with our listeners. Sure. So the, uh, the best place is uh, pressrun.media. You can read it for free. You could subscribe. Uh, some people then like to pay for it. That's obviously up to them. I'm on Twitter a lot, Eric Bollert, uh, B-O-E-H-L-E-R-T. So those are the those are the two best places to uh, to find me and see what's going on. Yes, well, Eric, it's just fascinating. Like I said, there's so much more we could possibly cover. Maybe sometime, you know, months down the road, if you are willing, we'd love to have you back on. Oh, sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you so much. Okay, have a great Thank day. You, Thank sir. you, sir. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, Eric Bollert, uh, PressRun.media. That's uh, how you get his site. Um, just you know, doing great work covering this media and what's going on. And, and there's, like I said, so many things we didn't even get into. We just scratched the surface. We didn't even talk about the left side of the media um, and where it goes without, you know, the, the <laughs> yeah. topic that is Trump. Well, um, Catherine and Tim, I want to kind of get back into what we started last week, and I think with 14, 15 minutes we may can, you know, do it justice, and that is this buy-sell hold for the Republicans on who um, runs against Raphael Warnock uh, in 2022. Catherine, we went through a few people, so if you want to do a rapid fire, we'll let you buy, sell, hold these folks, and then we'll pick up the list where we left off. And um, I think uh, okay. we decided David, David Perdue's not going to run, and he, he would have made sense as being a possibility, but he's not. 
Um, so I know we talked about Kelly Leffler. Buy, sell, hold on Kelly. Sell. Sell. Yeah, that's kind of – and you, you can add comments to it if you want to because um, we did too. And then I think we did Doug Collins. Um, what about right. Doug Collins? Uh, well, I don't want him to run, but, yeah, but not, yes, he's, probably, yeah, you're, he's probably a good candidate for the Republicans. So I'll say I'll buy him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, I mean, I can't imagine I wouldn't be happy with Raphael Warnock for re-election. So it's got to be looking at through the Republican lens. Okay, so right. this was an article that's been about three weeks ago now, and actually, I saw some other places where they actually added more names. So, but we're going to start off with this AJC article. Um, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, um, kind of an intriguing name. Tim, what do you think about Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan? Well, I'm going to sell him because Trump hates him. Uh, he, 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 I mean, Duncan is even talking this GOP 2.0 stuff that moves the party away from Trump, and that's just not going to fly right now. So, so I, I, I don't. I don't think he can get any traction. I'm going to sell him. Catherine? I'm going to – you know, I, uh, I've i said a, a couple times over the past month or so that I, I just think we need to um, wait and see how what happens with um, our former president. So I'm going <laughs> to say hold on Jeff's on – Jeff, uh, see – See how things go in the next few months, and then re- maybe revisit it. Yeah, I, I see where you're both coming from, and I and I agree with both of you. If it was just some kind of you know seven candidate primary or seven candidate may get him in, but if it was some kind of primary battle and it was who was the Trumpiest, and that seems to be what wins primaries these days, yeah, Jeff Duncan would be DOA. But if you could somehow install him into the GOP nomination. Um, he's a pretty good candidate. Um, he's a fresh face. He's not, you know, extra Trumpy. And so therefore, I mean, he was willing to stand up for democracy in that period. And it may change, of course, again, because letting people vote in the next election is part of democracy right. too. But in the period between November um, and January, I'll give him his credit, because he, 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 he didn't really have to get in the fray like the Secretary of State and the governor. He kind of inserted himself and, and went out of his way, so I can respect that, and I'll give him credit where credit is due in that period. So I would buy the general election, Jeff Duncan. So um, I, in the end, I'll just say buy. I'll, I'll just play some fantasy world where he could actually you know, compete in a primary. Um, so now – Next candidate, Attorney General Chris Carr. Um, Tim, what do you think? I'm going to do a hold uh, because he's Johnny Isaacson's man, used to work for him. So there's a possibility there because Senator Isaacson would, would, you know, the the fact that he worked for him, that would carry a lot of weight. Uh, in in the Republican Party of this era, so I'm going to do hold there. Say, Catherine. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to do a buy for him. Um, like Tim said, he's you know he's been around for a while. He worked for Johnny Isaacson. I think he's got a good name in the 
Republican Party in Georgia for sure, and probably nationally too. He can probably raise the money with the help of Johnny. Um, I don't know what he how he is about Trump, so that I guess would would be further require further investigation. But I'm going to say bye. Yeah, I think he kind of built his reputation as more in the world of of current Republican politics, more moderate. Now, not a moderate in the old sense of the term, but as far as Republican politics. But I think in some of this, um, you know, what went down, he was not as forceful and outspoken as he really should have been. Um, And so, therefore, I guess he was looking to play the long game with the way Republicans want you to be as anti-democratic as you possibly can be, and I mean that against the party, not the concept of government. And so um, I was kind of underwhelmed by him comparatively. Yeah, so – but I do think he is a more attractive candidate than some other folks they would come up with. So I'll do a a, um, buy – you know, at this point, because he does have attorney general. Attorney general has been a launching pad in a lot of other states for higher office. Georgia, it's really never been as as big a launching pad as other states for some reason. Um, Michael Bowers couldn't use it. Thurbert Baker, um, you know, didn't use it to anything else. I'm forgetting someone else in the recent history, and now Chris Carr. Tim, you probably know, what's the last time somebody's gone from AG to, say, governor or U.S. Senate in Georgia? Or does no, that I animal don't know. That just right. So that animal may not exist. Yeah, because, you know, like North yeah. Carolina, that's like the – that's better than lieutenant governor. Like when you become AG, a lot of times you're the next governor of North Carolina. Um, Georgia, it's just never been a, a launching pad for whatever reason. Well, we've had late, lately. It's, it's been, you know, straight from the state legislature, or, or it's, or it's been from the U.S. Congress, you know, yeah. to the to the state house in Georgia. And I don't yeah. remember well, when an attorney general ever did it. Yeah, because Brian Kemp, uh, he went from Secretary of State, but he was in the state legislature before. Right. Um, you know, it could be Stacey Abrams ends up going legislature because that's her last office. Governor Roy Barnes, um, Sonny Perdue, um, you know, and Deal was the exception there. Okay, now, to me, by far the most interesting name of the list, um, Herschel Walker. Uh, Catherine, buy, sell, hold on Herschel. You know – you know how I am. I don't know anything about sports ball, and so I I just can't even say. I don't know. Well, that's the thing. It isn't how good he was at football. It was how good he would he be as a candidate. Um, yeah, but that's where he made his name is, is is football. Yeah, I mean, does he know anything about politics? Probably knows more than Tommy <laughs> Tuberville. I'll, I'll say that. I'll say with <laughs> certainty he knows okay. more than Tommy Tuberville. <laughs> Well then, let's do a buy on him. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I really, I really can't comment on on him. I just can't. I don't know anything about him. Okay. I don't um, he would be. I don't even know if he would be popular. I just don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, popular. I, I'd say he'd be popular. Now, maybe not politically, but he'd be popular. Um, okay, Tim. Now, put your Georgia Tech bias aside. Uh, buy, sell, hold on Herschel. Oh, I'm going to put it aside. Herschel Walker's the best college running back that I ever saw. You know, and anybody that says different, you know, it's 
It, it really is being biased. He was. Uh, he, you know, he he's legendary in Georgia. And I want to do a buy. I want to do it really bad, but I'm going to do a hold, and I'm going to tell you why. Even though he would be very interesting. Uh, one question is: Is he up to it? Is he up to winning the Republican nomination? Um, could he lure voters away from the others? Uh, and and one really, really, really bad thing. He kind of stuck his neck out when he supported Leffler. And I wonder if he got his neck chopped off along with hers because he just picked the wrong horse in that race. And uh, so, so I don't know if the Trump world, for instance, would be really wild about it, even though he played for Donald Trump. You know, uh, <laughs> with the New Jersey Generals, I still have to wonder if his support of Kelly Leffler uh, hurt him. And and finally, I'm doing a whole because I don't know if he's interested in doing this or not. Yeah. Um, okay. First off, I'm going to buy Herschel Walker for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He should be in based on his kickoff returns alone because he's got like the most yards ever gained in pro football total, and he's not in the Hall of Fame, which is nuts. Um, but politics is another animal. In 2006, Kathy Cox, when she ran for governor, this is Democratic Secretary of State, um, Herschel Walker endorsed her and did a fundraiser. He also endorsed Barbara Christmas um, for Democratic candidate for um, Georgia school superintendent. I think he's in, endorsed some other Democrats. Um, but here's where I'm going with that. He's now starting to endorse more Republicans, including David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. Um, and even talk some, you know, Republican language. But I talked to Herschel when he did that fundraiser. It was just one of those kind of things where it was so long. Um, I was working for the campaign. I got to talk to him. We actually talked about Donald Trump, of all things, well before he was ever in politics, because Herschel uh, would be apprentice. And I don't think he had been on the celebrity apprentice at that point. Um, but had a had a, just a really nice conversation. Um but here's the thing that I think could get Herschel in trouble. He would run for the Republican primary, and there would be some issue come up, something like the minimum wage, where um, you know Herschel probably knows people that really you know need more money in their pocket when they work, and he would take the Democratic position, not realizing it was the Democratic position, just because it's how Herschel felt, because he's been so all over the map and who he's endorsed. Um, a lot of times through personal connections, and the Republicans would jump all over him because he um, took that position. And I think that would make a very interesting but dangerous political dynamic. Another thing that I, I think we uh, would have to wonder about is, you know, after Marjorie Greene, after Kelly Leffler, you know, posed with these Klan members and everything else. If you were to have an African American versus African American for U.S. Senate, where does this hopefully well under five percent of the electorate that are just hardcore racist? Where do those folks go in a, an election like that? And if they don't vote for the Republican candidate because they're not going to vote for Herschel or Raphael. How does that impact the election? And, you know, 
sorry that you don't like the choices in our democracy, you racist. I don't really care about that. But what does that do to the um, picture? So we got about a minute now. Uh, Tim, you, you kind of moan. What do you think? Well, I think they'd vote for the libertarian. That, you know, that you've always got that. You maybe so. I mean, you know, that a, a, a lot of hardcore folks that don't like the nominee in the Republican Party for whatever reason, you know, have run over to the libertarians. Just like when the libertarians don't have a nominee, they run to the Republicans, and that's what they do. I have no doubt in my mind, and it would hurt the Republican nominee desperately, especially with these close elections we're having yeah. now. And on that, you'd have to think more about selling. Uh, Catherine, your thoughts on the racial dynamic of uh, Walker-Warnock race? Oh, it would be – it wouldn't be pretty. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think – I think you know, Tim makes a good point, and I think you make a good point too, that you'd have some Republicans that didn't know – that would not know how to vote, wouldn't want to vote for either. So would either not vote or vote a libertarian. But I also think it would be um, probably a pretty unpleasant race. I think there'd be a lot of attacks and I I wouldn't, I wouldn't want it. Yeah, I I, I know this. I don't know how Raphael Warnock would, or a Democratic campaign would would look at attacking Herschel because he is personally popular. I think it would be tricky. Um, and and like I said, I think it is a small percentage. I mean, Republican South Carolina elected Tim Scott. You know, so obviously those hardcore racists are a very very small part. Um, you know, uh, I mean, there's a lot of very conservative Republicans that really genuinely supported uh, Ben Carson, but there's that little portion. And when you get into elections that are a percent or less difference, everything counts and affects. Well, I want to thank again our, our guest, Eric Bollert, for coming on the show. And next week, we've got Magic Wade. Uh, we'll try to get her in the summer. We do have her book for next week, talking Minnesota and Alaska. And I guess just politics and places where it snows um she's going to come be our guest but until then it's been the kudzu vine good night y'all good night guys night everybody we are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united america still